you, Dr. Brassel, for going out of your way to take the time to share that with our church family. And Sherry and I are so deeply privileged to have this awesome both uh, responsibility yet privilege to serve as the pastors of this great fellowship and see the growth that we have made as a fellowship, not just necessarily numerically because there's an ebb and flow oftentimes in church growth, but, but spiritually, that's my target above all things, to see you mature in faith. Paul's desire, he prayed this, he said, is to present you as a chaste virgin unto the Lord in that context, to see you pure before God, to see you grow. You know, the Bible says in Titus, as I've been preaching, that we can live unspotted from the world, right? And to raise up a fellowship that wants to, Philippians 2 says that we'll hold forth the word of life in the midst of a, uh, an, an, an evil or a corrupt generation. And you're doing that. You're making a difference in the lives of men and women. And we're going to read eight verses of Scripture, but we're going to do so from about six different or seven different passages today. And it's going to join with uh, two messages that have been preached on Sunday morning and a third that I preached last Sunday night under this title, Averting Crisis in the Contemporary Church. And as you're turning, uh, as you're standing, because only eight verses, we have the, we'll be able to stand together and read this. I have uh, shared with you that one of the things that I believe, both pastorally and uh, in the context of the gifts that God has given us, every pastor has a little bit different additional gifting that can flow through their shepherding and teaching ministry. Almost all pastors should be teachers. But some are more effective as evangelists, and some have a little bit of a prophetic element. And what I mean by that is the prophet of old was compared to a watchman at times, and he stood upon the wall to see how the enemy might or when the enemy might be advancing, the, the watchman did, and warned the city. And to avert crisis in the contemporary church, even though I'm preaching in rural America to a mid-sized church, but it still doesn't mean that I can't have a listening ear uh, to the heartbeat of God, that where our church is and what kind of connection that can be to the overall uh, context of the body of Christ as a whole. Now, because we are a part of the body, right? And one of the things that I have been uh, observing is that I see a measure of crisis that is beginning to mount. And uh, the, to avert a crisis is to strategically move in advance and to try to, in essence, cut it off at the pass, right? You've had to do that in your life. You saw something happening. I remember years ago, Sherry and I saw a time financially in our lives when we had a financial crisis looming, and, and we had to set down and put, strategic, put a strategic plan in place to cut it off because if we continue, let me tell you what leads to a crisis. Spend more than you, than, than you make. Hello? Right? That will eventually become an economic or a slash financial crisis in your own life. But a diligent plan averted that crisis. Right? Well, I'm trusting that God is using, at least in this local congregation, this word to share with you that if we begin to move strategically, we can avert the crisis, at least in our assembly and in our community. Now, we're going to read these passages of Scripture quickly. You're going to note a common theme, Acts 2 and 42. They're going to roll them on the screen. I'm going to read them with the sound of the pages turning on my Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is familiar to many. And they, the early church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. From there, we turn to 1 Corinthians 
the 10th chapter and the 16th verse. And again, I'll only read one verse of Scripture in these passages until the last passage, which I'll read three. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse number 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, which we're going to share in communion tonight? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Galatians, the second chapter and the ninth verse. It's kind of just in a biblical order that we're following this uh, here in the New Testament. Galatians 2, the ninth verse. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, Paul writing, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Philippians chapter number 1, verse number 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm just exposing to you a common theme that has been, this is just a snapshot where this theme occurs many more times than what I'm reading here today. In Hebrews, the 13th chapter, it's the 16th verse. It says, do not forget to do good and to share New King James Version. King James would say to communicate. Do not forget to share, it says here, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And now in 1 John chapter 1, three verses, and that will conclude the reading of, our, of Scripture. It's the third, the sixth, and the seventh verse. John the Beloved writes, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father. Come on, that is a good place to say amen. And with his son, Jesus Christ. Sixth verse. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Right? Seventh verse. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other or with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have this moment to elaborate and expound upon the word of God. I pray as I have prayed privately, I now pray it publicly. Let the people's heart be prepared to receive your word. And God, what you have sown in my heart in secret, God, now give me an exhortation or an unction to be able to teach it and to preach it audibly and publicly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you. It was last Sunday in the AM service that I shared with our church family because I did not do so in the beginning message, part one of the message, what would be the crisis? What would that be that I would discern in my watchful, prayerful moment of looking at our fellowship, looking at the body of Christ, at least in what I have the ability to observe? And that is, what is the crisis that could potentially be looming? Is it a financial crisis? Uh, you know, is it a political crisis and, I, and and even though that potentially could be laying out there that's not where my attention was drawn this is where my attention was concerning the church that the church would lose its power to influence to instruct or to evangelize within this culture and in doing so we would become in essence a dead sect we would have a form of godliness but we would no longer have the power of the gospel working among us. 
Because let me tell you, church family, we're more than just a social club. We're to be a light on a hill that cannot be hid, right? I remember that Jesus said in Matthew 16 that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a defensive component to the church, but there is also an offensive component to the church where we shine the light into the darkness, and the Bible says the darkness cannot comprehend it or overcome it. But I'm afraid that if we don't address some things in our midst and be mature enough as believers to address some things and to not have our, uh, wear our feelings on our, our sleeves, so to speak, and let the Spirit of God speak to us, uh, two weeks ago, I spoke to millennials. The reason being because in 2015, uh, as some baby boomers had slowly slipped into eternity, that the millennials, ages 19 to 35, become the largest segment of the American populace. We had the generation stand in our church family, and it was one of the largest segments of our church, and I was grateful to see that. And I spoke a word to the millennials, and I concluded by encouraging them to not drop the baton of genuine faith, right? To run with the genuine faith that you have received from men and women that are in front of you with the belief in Christ. Last week, I spoke to you about a personal appeal for an, an antiquated doctrine in the, in the body of Christ, and that is sanctification and holiness, that God's calling us to be distinct from the world. He is. The call of the Spirit has always been to come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. And God said, I'll be a God to you. You can still shine the light. You don't have to be the world to win the world. You can be in the world but not of the world and you can still influence the world. Let's go further. In the PM service, I carefully had Sister Sherry strategically move the car here to the side so that I would be ready to get out of here. But I preached about, again, a doctrine that has kind of slipped through our fingers. It's in the context of stumbling blocks. That all of us should guard ourselves in the context of not setting stumbling blocks. The principle of stumbling blocks used to be taught openly in the church. And I did share that one of the things that I was concerned about, and I say this very respectfully, if you want to listen to the message in its entirety, it should be on our website. I shared that. I will say this very respectfully. Clothing has been in the creation by God to conceal nakedness. In our generation, it's designed to reveal nakedness. Yeah, and y'all shout me down. That's all right. I preach it anyhow. I'll just go on. And I was teaching the principle to guard yourself, especially to the ladies, to guard yourself, to awaken uh, this doctrine of, of guarding your heart. And I know that sometimes that makes you vulnerable to being judged by another man's conscience. But if you read the Word of God, the Word of God says there are moments when that happens. It does. But we don't, again, when our heart is truly set before God, we don't want to set a stumbling block, right? And sometimes you can't control what's going on in the heart and mind of someone else. You can, but you can control what you do, right? So let's go a little bit further. Today, in order to avert crisis in the American or the Western or the Western contemporary church, then you as a believer in Christ, so I'm preaching to the church today, you must find communion or fellowship with the local body of believers. You've got to do more than attend church. I can say this with, as a pastor for these past 20 years is that we are way too loosely connected in the American church. 
There's usually a core group of people who are truly bound together in fellowship. But that core group oftentimes represents 20 to 30%. Sometimes it's larger. Sometimes it's as much as 50 or 60%. Even if it was as high as 60%, that means 40% of the people that attend the church are not directly connected to another people group or to the pastor or to the fellowship. They just simply come to hear the word of God, and that's the extent of their involvement. And I want you to see today that we don't know what's going on in America. There's a lot of changing rifts and shifts that are going on both culturally and politically. I'm telling you, you need a family of faith. You need a family of faith that you are knit together in love with. This, let me go a little bit further. The Greek word koinonia is translated in the New Testament as fellowship. I don't know if you noticed as you were reading those passages of Scripture, the most common word was fellowship or communion. This Greek word is translated 20 times in the New Testament, and it is translated as fellowship or contribution. And in contribution, it wasn't necessarily talking about monetary, but about what you can contribute to the good of the fellowship. Are y'all with me out there? So that, you know, kind of like this, when we have potluck, when you bring, have potluck, everybody contributes something to the dinner. So you contribute to the heart of the body. Communion or distribution or communicate, King James English, share in the New King James. Here's what koinonia means. It means a partnership. Come on, we are not just a, attending church. We are partnered together. The Bible says our hearts ought to be knit together in love by Christ Jesus. It means a participation. You're not just a spectator. Many years ago, one of JoJo's first sermons preached here in the sanctuary at First Assembly, he preached about taters. I haven't forgot it, that some folks are spectators. God doesn't want you to be a spectator. He wants you to be a participant. Come on, in the heart of this fellowship. Man, I'm preaching way better than y'all shouting. Uh, an association or a fellowship. Social intercourse. I knew it'd get real quiet in here. <laughs> Somebody was thinking, now you got my attention, Pastor. The non-sexual social intercourse. So let's go ahead and clarify that. But a connection. Believers must learn to come together in mutual fellowship where you learn to both give and receive. Come on, sometimes you come to church and you are in great need of receiving. But sometimes you come to church and you need to be the giver. Sometimes you stand for prayer. And sometimes you're shatakaya mosia and laying hands on everybody else. Right? Because you've learned this, pra this practice and process. But we share love. We strengthen one another. The world's always trying to tear you down. We want this to be the place where you get built back up. You find encouragement. You get built up in the faith. And I mean that really establishing the faith, not just in some type of, uh, you know, social experiment where we, we pat you on the back and we just want you happy. No, we want you strong in faith, strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Come on, so when you've done all you know to do, you draw the line and you stand. Shoulders squared back, confident that no weapon formed against you will prosper, but all those that rise up against you will fall. Come on, because you've been built up in faith in the Lord, right? And then the ability of the church is strengthened, and we are able to become who God has called us to be. 
But the ability of the church to avert the crisis is limited in our culture because we are way too fragmented. We are way too isolated, and at times we are way too independent. Helen Keller said these words, Alone we can do little, but together we can do much. Let's go a little further. Another author noted in the context of the Greek koinonia, the fellowship or the communion that I've read the passages with you publicly. It can be understood by a study of this phrase, this biblical phrase, one another. Think about that. The many times you've seen one another in the scripture. We are taught to be devoted to one another. We're taught to honor one another. We're taught to live in harmony with one another. We're taught to accept one another. We're taught to serve one another. Are y'all with me? To encourage one another, to spur one another to love and to good works, to offer hospitality and to love one another as he loved us. To go further, much of the scripture, this is my observation, much of the scripture is written with an individual application. When you read the word of God, God speaks to you. He speaks to you directly as an individual believer. But most of the time, it has a corporate or a congregational consequence. God speaks to you individually, but in response to what he says to you, you're going to affect the whole. The individual application is intended to affect the whole. Let me give an example. Scripture calls us uh, God's building. God uses metaphors throughout the Word of God to help us to understand. I'm grateful that he did. Natural things become spiritual principles. God calls us a building. He calls us an assembly. So individually, we are the building blocks or the stones or the boards of the building. Now, if you, uh, if you have ever been on a building site, men, if you haven't, and you would like to learn this lesson more carefully, then we'll be working Thursday and Saturday. <laughs> Listen for the times. But if a stone is chiseled by the mason or a board is cut by the carpenter, it's done to the individual board or it's done to the individual stone, but it's done for the purpose of the stone or the board to fit within the framework of the building. So God is working on you as an individual, but as he's working on you as an individual, he's molding you and shaping you so that you can be added to the other lively stones, is what Peter said, that's being built up a spiritual house that's offering sacrifice to God. So now scripture uses a lot of examples of the process of individuals becoming connected and learning to function within a group. One of the things as a pastor that I'm responsible of as a shepherd is to take the individual gifts and talents of a great group of men and women who come from all different walks of life and somehow we must come together and unite in one common vision, a common agreement, learn to love one another, respect one another, and work with one another. Come on, it's not easy to do, but it can be done by the grace of God. Jesus, or the scriptures taught many examples of, of this principle. He used the tribes of Israel, such as uh, the nation of Israel, that you could then go beyond that, the tribes, the sons of Jacob. And from there, within the sons of Jacob, there were elders. And from there, there were individual families or the descendants. Or he did use, Ezekiel used the metaphor of a shepherd and how a shepherd would uh, assimilate sheep and goat and cattle into one flock 
that then would follow the shepherd along the journeys of life or the tabernacle as you read the Old Testament or the temple with all of its instruments and its materials that was collectively joined together to become this house that could worship God. Uh, that people could worship God in. And then even in the New Testament, we find the metaphor of one body with many members. And the eye, Paul said, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee. So you can't say over here, I don't have any need of you over there. Say we need each other. We need to learn to bear one another's burdens. Whatever needs to take place for you to become chiseled, cut, molded, or assimilated in order to find connection, then, Lord, let it happen. Because God wants your individual gifts and callings to find its greatest strength and purpose as it's revealed through the collective work of the body of Christ. Let's go a little bit further. I got four things I'm going to drop down in your heart today, and I'm going to bring you down to the altar for a brief time of prayer. Four things, just nuggets. This is very pastoral, but you know what? I'm a pastor, and I want you connected to this body. I don't want you on the fringe. That's what we call it in the church. You're on the fringe. You're on the fringe means you're just one step away from being gone. You may be here today, gone tomorrow. You might be gone. We don't even know you're gone because you had never been connected and we didn't get to feel your giftings to really experience who you are because you've got individual giftings and callings and we want to see them manifested. Let me say this, four things real quickly today. Number one, you must have an authentic conversion for us to have authentic communion. Man, that's good. Let me say that again. I want to say that again. You must have authentic conversion for us to have authentic communion. Because what I'm preaching to you today, especially if you're a visitor, this is not about you finding a church to attend. This is about you responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction. The Holy Spirit woos you and compels you to come to Christ for both cleansing and regeneration. The message does not change just because you're here. You must be born again. Come on, you must be born from above. You must be born by the Spirit of God. Just coming to church doesn't save you. Just coming to church doesn't translate you into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You've got to open your heart and your mind and your spirit and your life and all that you are unto Jesus. You've got to surrender to Him, accepting the free pardon of sins. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And then you'll be a new creature, new creation. A new person. Old things will pass away and all things will be made new in God. God has the ability to take away your past and make you whole and new in Him through His Son. And let me say this today. True fellowship. True fellowship cannot happen between a believer and an unbeliever. Paul said this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Paul is sharing the same principle. Writing to the Corinthians that was in a city that was filled with paganism. And where they were to be the light in the midst of darkness. They were to be the salt that could lead to preservation. They were compelling people to come out of the world. And Paul said, let me remind you that your, your inner, your most intimate communion and fellowship cannot happen with an unbeliever because you are two distinct beings. Two totally, you got two different fathers. And so let me say this. This is why, again, go back to averting the crisis in the contemporary church. This is why I don't support the current trend of so many churches adopting the world's philosophy 
and so rearranging their structure of worship as to make sinners more comfortable in church. Let me say this. We cannot truly assimilate people into the flock who are not genuinely saved. Listen, if you're a sinner here, I don't want you comfortable. I want you uncomfortable. I want you squirming just a little bit because I know what that is. That means the Holy Spirit's got you on trial. Let me tell you, when the police officer, the blue lights flash in the rearview mirror, I'm telling you, your heart rate begins to go up. And you're not sitting there comfortable in your leather seats all looking cool, but all of a sudden you start fidgeting a little bit and you're just kind of nervous and you're starting to dig into the glove box because you want to know whether you got your insurance card or whether you got your registration card. And, and when he comes, because what is that? That's conviction. That's what's happening. He's going to talk to you about a breach in the law that you made and you already feel the heightens. And see, I want you here today. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you a little bit uncertain. I want you going man what's going on I, I feel the Holy Ghost calling me and compelling me about to arrest you and put you on trial so that you can learn that yes you're guilty before God but God judged your sin at the cross and Christ has made a way he bore your sin so now you can have access to the Father hallelujah and I think if we're not careful we'll fill our churches up with folks that never get saved because we never present the truth of the gospel to them what we can be if you're a sinner under that context we can and we will be kind to you we will be gracious to you we will be hospitable we will be warm and welcoming and we will be willing to pray for you at any moment but you, deep communion cannot happen until your heart responds to Jesus number two to truly find communion slash fellow. Are y'all with me today? Man, this is good. I love the word of God. And so today, we, to truly find communion or fellowship in a local body of Christ, listen to this. This is where it's really going to get good. You must recognize that there is some type of spiritual slash social structure that must be followed. You've got to know this. As you get ready to assimilate into the body. It cannot nor should it be every man for himself. Listen, with the, whether the metaphor is sheep and shepherd or whether the metaphor is a family or whether the, the metaphor is a body and its members, there is an existing spiritual slash social structure within the context of every local body of Christ. And you need to recognize it and you need to respect it and learn to find your place within it. Let me give you per example. Dr. Brassfield mentioned this a moment ago, but I'm the pastor of this church. Let me take you a little further in this, what that means. That means that there was both an election and an appointment. There was an election by the local body here that 13 years ago, this little skinny preacher, that's what I used to call myself, and I stress the word used to, from Shirley showed up from Wilburn by way of Shirley. And this church family voted me in to be the pastor. And the assemblies of God took that vote and added their agreement and I was appointed as the pastor of this assembly which means I represent the full presbytery of this greater larger body of ministers called the assemblies of God and I'm a, a, both elected and appointed in this fellowship as the pastor that's akin to the father of a household it's akin to a patriarch it's certainly akin to a shepherd of the sheep now, I'm not alone. I have other pastors that help me and assist me in shepherding this fellowship. 
that we have Jojo and Shane and Pastor Brent that they help me. There are other leaders, some by election and appointment and others simply by maturation and experience. They've been here long enough to earn your respect. You've seen the, t- the, the testimony of their faith. And so in the context of family, if you're new to the body of Christ, you will have spiritual grandparents. You'll have spiritual parents. You'll have brothers and sisters in Christ, cousins and aunts and uncles, aunts if you're from the south, aunts if you're from the north. But here's the truth. We are family, like the old song, all my brothers and sisters and me. We're not perfect. We have ups and downs and highs and lows, but we function together as a family, and you got to find your place. One of your key responses to this structure in order to find communion, and I want you to find communion. I hate it when I see folk that just don't find communion in the church. I want you to find fellowship, brothers and sisters whose hearts are knit together in love. Let me drop three little nuggets down in your heart in that context. Number one, you got to learn to submit to spiritual leaders. You've got to. God calls us all to submit. I submit to spiritual leaders in my life. The Bible says that you're to obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? Because we're watching for your soul. That means if we point you in a certain direction or encourage you in a certain way, you need to listen to what we're saying because God's Holy Spirit's upon us in that area. The Bible says, uh, do do not let us do this with grief for that would be unprofitable for you, but let us do so with joy. You have to learn to submit to each other. That means that, yes, you have to submit. Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another in the fear of God. That means you got to yield yourself to the overall vision and practice or way of doing things in the fellowship. Let's go a little bit further. The younger submit to the older. Well, we'll get there in a moment. 1 Peter 5 says, likewise, you younger submit yourselves to the elders. Let me go a little bit further. I want you to find family in the fellowship, but not at the expense of the whole. Come on, if you're going to come in here and be a a rebel, God doesn't want you to be rebellious. God wants you to conform to the will of his son and find your place in the body of Christ. Let me go further. Submission to spiritual authority will recognize God's call of pastors. When you humble yourself, I've said it for my whole pastoral ministry. I'll say it again. Every person needs a pastor. Every person. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care if you've got a mansion beside Billy Graham's waiting on you in heaven. That doesn't matter. You need a pastor. You need somebody that you submit yourself. Sometimes we lose good men, especially men. We lose good men in this fellowship occasionally because people sometimes are too arrogant to submit themselves to somebody that they're going to call pastor. And, and so I want to challenge you today. As iron sharpens iron, we want to help sharpen you, both men and ladies. Uh, we, we need to submit to one another. Why? Because it brings your individual gifts and your callings into accountability and to harmony within the church. You know, in days gone by, in the old days of church, worship service sometimes, today for the most part, because we have a lot of electronic instruments, most musical instruments are, are, are maintained on the platform. Now, in days gone by in Pentecostalism, people just felt themselves they would bring their own instrument, even though they wouldn't be on the platform. And so in the middle of the worship service, somebody hit the tambourine. And then I can understand a little component of that. But, but I've also been in service where the worship team is doing one thing, and somebody's got the tambourine over here doing something altogether different. And see, we believe that you need to yield your gifts and your callings to the whole. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? 
It's like a sports team. A lot of times there's some talented people, but they can't seem to find a connection of working with someone else. Let me share this one today real quickly, and I won't take much longer of your time, but we need to see this. I'm telling you, I believe in this principle I'm about to give you. We need to see the younger learn to submit to the elder in our American church. We do. Listen, let me, let me go a little further with this real quickly. Because in doing so, it protects the family structure from the instability of youthful lust and desires. It does. I'm going to go a little further. Y'all aren't shouting me down, but I'm going to preach it anyhow. This demands a love and a respect for the preceding and the succeeding generations. That means, yes, we appreciate those that are coming after us. And we want to bring them along the way, right? But that means we respect those who ran in front of us. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? One of the ways that I personally see the body of Christ being harmed in the contemporary church is we have an over-affixation with the younger generation at the expense of the elder or of the older. Let me tell you the truth about Pastor Brown. I'm the father of six millennials. Do you know what that means? Six between the ages of 19 and 35. Actually, six between the ages of 19 and 28. Sherry and I got it all done in a 10-year period of time, praise the Lord. And yes, we're on a full-time honeymoon now. Thank the Lord. Hallelujah. I feel Jesus. It's a date. You better call before you come see me at the house. That's all I got to tell you. Hello, somebody. And so I'm the father of six millennials that are all involved in church at some level, some more than the others. But everybody's in church this morning at an assembly of God fellowship of some type, involved in church at a different degree. And I am grateful that there is a concerted effort to reach out to the millennials and to pull them into the fellowship. But I want my kids and I want your kids to learn to love, respect, value, and appreciate the older brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't make it all about them. It's supposed to be about him. Let's go a little bit further. Here's what I see can happen. So it's a delicate balance. If we fail to engage the younger generation by not empowering them to use their gifts and their callings now, we rob our fellowship of some of the greatest and most unique gifts and skill sets because there's some talented young folks that are gifted in God, that have got a great compassion to serve God and passion to serve God. But in this, on the same note, when we over-empower the younger generation without regard for the other older generations, then what we do is we follow an immature reasoning at times and we create a self-centered, here's a new word for you, meistic mindset where it's all about me that seeks to alter the life of the body for their good without considering the whole. Let me tell you what we're not going to do at First Assembly. We're not going there. We will recognize the necessity of the existing family structure. Your grandma and grandpa on here today, we love you. Thank God for your wisdom. Thank God for your kindness and your gifts. Let me just take a moment to talk to you about the churches that don't have the inner tensions that often goes with churches that have four and five generations represented in our worship service. That's how we get a lot of church planning in our generation because they don't want to go through the process of having to learn to pull grandma, right, all the way down to the, to the five and six-year-old and somehow bridge the gap about five generations. And it's not easy. It wouldn't be easy in your house. 
Right. If your mama was still alive or your daddy was still alive and grandpa was still alive and little Johnny and Susie who's in the fifth grade was, was all under one house. It's not easy to do. But let me tell you what some of the churches that they think that they've got it all together because they don't have to deal with those inner tensions. They will as time goes along. And as Conway Twitty saying, as your auburn hair is faded and gray takes its place. Y'all didn't know you'd get a little Conway Twitty up here on Sunday morning. I'll tell you, there will come a day when this group of younger folk are then going to want to be respected and valued by the younger generation that's coming after them. Right? So why don't we just set the precedence? Why, don't, why doesn't First Assembly just say, listen, we're going to work, find a way for us all to work together in love. And we're going to love and respect one another. Let me see what time it is. I don't want to listen. It's noon. i got to go real, real quickly to finish this message. The last point will be very quickly. For authentic communion, number three, to take place, there's got to be some measure of doctrinal unity. We've got to come together in agreement. There has to be something. I'm going to skip those verses. I'm just going to share them at the base of the Word of God. There is a unity that can only be created when we have a like-mindedness in our belief system. Right? And there's a warning in Scripture about being divided and fragmented doctrinally. Some measure of doctrinal unity is necessary. I'm not saying that we must be in exact agreement to every theological, philosophical, or practical teaching and application. But different levels of doctrinal unity will affect different levels of authentic communion. Let me give you an example. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be representing you at the pastor's banquet, the Gideon's pastor's banquet right here in Hebrew Springs. Yes, that means I get a free meal because I'm willing to invite the Gideons to come in to receive an offering. But I'm glad to be there. And there will be denominations of all shapes and sizes represented. And we will fellowship together and we will walk in love to one another. But among us are what's called cessationists. A cessationist is a doctrinal belief that the gifts and the works of the Holy Spirit have passed away and do not continue or did not continue after the death of the last apostles of the first century or at the worst at the canon of Scripture. And so they, they have some measure of respect for me and they do love me and they recognize that I'm born again, but they think that when I pray in the Spirit, I'm under the influence of demonic spirits. So now with that brother or sister in Christ, I can love them and fellowship with them, but my deepest level of communion is going to be reserved for somebody that when I come down to this altar, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And my gift awakens their gift, and I might be praying in the Spirit, and they're prophesying in the Holy Ghost. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so let me tell you, if I can just put this in your heart to say, well, pastor, what is the core doctrinal belief of First Assembly of God? It's connected to our missional statement, and that is that we are a spirit-filled fellowship. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We embrace the unction and the anointings of God, and we want to see every man, woman, boy, and girl baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence, listen to this, listen very carefully, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Yes, we speak in other tongues, and we are not ashamed of it we are so grateful that God empowers us we do not belittle you if you've not received but we're going to always continue to encourage you to come and to receive of God's power and lastly today and I want the worship team to come back or as many as you want Shane to come back with you because I'd like for us to pick up that last song that we just did a moment ago about no weapon lastly in order to have authentic communion. I know it's after 12. You say, Pastor, I'm a visitor. You invited me to dinner, and now it's after 12. Just get used to it if we're going to assimilate you into this fellowship. Is that right, church family? Just get used to it. 
in order to have authentic communion. Yeah, let's listen. Let's listen. This is for you right here. We, we, I stress we, must have sincere love and care for one another. You must be able to find strength and encouragement from the body. You can't just get all your encouragement from me as the pastor. And it definitely can't hinge upon just what I give you on Sunday mornings. Come on, for 45 minutes. 50 minutes on a long preaching day. 38 minutes on a short preaching day. An hour and 17 minutes when I'm out and JoJo's preaching. You can't just get it all there. That was funny and y'all know that. We need each other. You need each other. I can't bear the burden of caring for the needs of this fellowship alone. You've got to learn to receive and to give. Care, concern, nurturing, and prayer. 1 Corinthians 12 said that there would be no schism in the body that the, or no division in the body, no fragmentation in the body if the members would have the same care one for another. Wouldn't that be a powerful entity that would be compelling to even unregenerate people? That they would see the authentic love in our hearts and lives towards each other. That we would have a rallying point. We'd have people that we know we could call at a moment's notice in our most difficult days. And somebody would be there for us. Does that make sense to you today? Galatians 6 says, if a man slash woman is overtaken in a trespass, which can be sin, but it can also simply be a fallen state of mind. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I believe in the virtue of the body being so knit together in love that there's a safe place to come to. Find fellowship and strength, prayer support. We believe in prayer. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You say, Pastor, you should have did this at 11.15 instead of 12. You know what? If you're really in need, you'll come forward. Come on, you, you, just to have somebody pray with you quickly. I've, said, I've shared this before, this analogy, and this is my last point to connect to this final point. It's the last example. I, I've seen this years ago, many years ago, back in the 80s, but at Sherry and I this past week saw a little clip of some type of National Geographic thing, you know, on television. I can't remember what the program was, but it, it was that. It was the, the, the water buffalo and the lions. Now, I know we sang a song a moment ago about that our God is the Lion of Judah. And he is. And he roars. That's one metaphor. Peter said, your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion. Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And, you know, the Bible talks about spiritual truths being gleaned from natural examples. And I sat amazed because, once again, I saw the pride strategically plan and watch and isolate a male buffalo the large member of the herd and they waited strategically until he was isolated and then out of the grass here they came and they leapt on him from every side and it wasn't just two or three this is one of those that I had never seen like this before because there was like seven eight nine ten they just came they just kept coming it was an entire pride. You know, most of the time, the lionesses are doing the hunting. This also had the male lion, had the mane, the big mane. And listen where he went. 
He went straight for the snout, not the jugular, not the neck, the straight for the snout of that buffalo. And he just locked down and held there. And that buffalo, as every other line came from the side and the rear, it was just like, it's like he was just pulling the very breath right out of him. Have you ever felt that way in life? Felt like the enemy was just on you. And it seemed like every breath, he was just sucking life from you. And by sheer weight of the lionesses upon him, he collapsed. And then here come even small ones. And they started gnawing at him. And they always go for the soft spots, the vulnerable places. Well, then, amazingly, here come the herd. You know, I was so excited because here come the herd. The herd come and come out of the, out of the brush. Here comes the, the other, uh, other buffaloes. And so they come forward. But uh, two or three of the lions pop up, let go, and they roar, and they challenge, and they run at the herd, and they scare the herd. And the herd dissipates. And the lion and the, jumps right back on where he was at. And I was so downcast in my heart because I was feeling, feeling a sermon. And I thought, first, man, I got this sermon. They're going to rescue him. And then, no, the lions chase them off. And they just gnawing away at him. Little ones ripping away at every area of his body. Then all of a sudden, you hear a little shift in the bushes and the herd has regrouped. I felt like the herd was regrouping today. The herd was regrouping because we saw that the enemies pinned you down. The enemies had you by the snout. Some of you here today, you couldn't even worship freely because you felt so compressed because you felt like the enemy was just sitting on your chest. And out of the bushes, the regrouped herd came together, locked horns together, charged the fallen animal and, the, and the, all the lions on it and drove every last one of them off until that lion. I thought there was no way that that buffalo would survive. And he climbed to his feet and he was restored back to the herd and he survived. Why? Because he was connected to a fellowship that didn't abandon him during this time of, of, of travail. You're here today as you stand up, and it's just a few minutes after noon today. It's about eight minutes after noon. And I'm going to give you the most general altar call that I can give you because I need, the effect, I need the full force of two people groups. Number one, you're here today, and you just say, Pastor, I just need the church family to know. I don't have to share it with anybody today, but I'm going to be courageous enough to just come to the front. And by walking to the front, I'm just saying, I'm just needing the church family to pray for me and my family, to just pray for us today. And that takes courage, doesn't it?